0: Welcome to Buy The Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paul Doyen. Managing a bar, even in the best of times, can take a lot out of you. But metamorphizing that decades-old concept in the course of one week requires a certain mental fortitude. My guest today did just that. Adele Corrigan has shepherded 13 Celsius wine bar through the tumultuous storm that is COVID-19. 13 Celsius is an institution here in Houston, Texas. Opened in 2006, this wine bar has served as an entry point into fine wine for many Houstonians, myself included. Adele has been the leader of 13 Celsius for over a decade, and was kind enough to MacGyver her fiancé's iPad into a microphone in order to tell me all about her love for Verdicchio, the secret to wine and cheese pairings, as well as her work keeping 13 Celsius afloat this past month. Our conversation started with Adele geolocating 13 Celsius within Midtown, a neighborhood better known for its frat bar favelas than for its repurposed historical buildings. Here she is setting the scene.
1: When 13 first opened, there was definitely nothing. Nothing around, just that and the fortune cookie factory and neighborhoods. And that was about it. Can you talk
0: a little bit about that fortune cookie factory? Because I feel like that's such a defining characteristic of 13, at least for me. Like it's this Pavlonian response where I smell fortune cookies and then suddenly crave Mortadella sandwiches and Lambrusco. Is there a story behind it?
1: Um, other than the fact that zoning laws in Houston allow a large factory to be right next to a multi-million dollar house, and then this run down old used to be dry cleaners turned into wine bar thirteen Celsius, but we, we have so many people who come in who are like, What's that smell? What are you guys baking? Like oh, we're not making anything, but that building next to us is a fortune cookie factory. And several years ago, they actually, before they built the fence around, you could actually go knock on their their front door, and they would sell you just like a huge, you know, three four foot bag of fortune cookies to go. Now that now they don't let you do that—you can't go in there anymore.
0: Oh, that's too bad. That's a bummer.
1: Yeah, but whenever they're baking, the whole neighborhood just smells like sweet waffle cones or vanilla cookies.
0: That's so cool. So 13 Celsius as a building, you mentioned, was previously a cleaner back in the 1920s?
1: Yeah. So the building was built in 1926, and it opened up originally as Jennings Cleaners. And they were the neighborhood clothing cleaners, alterations. They also did fabric dyeing. Um, And then I believe in the 80s, they built on dry cleaning equipment into the back area. And that's actually where our parking lot is now. Uh, When our owner bought the building, they tore that part down, cleaned up the land and put the parking lot in and uh, bought the building and turned it into the wine bar. Built in the uh, temperature controlled cellar. We were one of the first people in Houston to serve wine at a proper temperature, 13 Celsius, also known as 55 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and we still do to this day, all of our red wines have a slight little chill on them. And it's, it's interesting because I think so many other places have adopted that too.
0: No, for sure. I, I mean, we still get people coming in who ask why our red wine's so cold or why our white wine isn't cold enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's more noticeable when it's super hot outside and there's people sitting outside in the courtyard. And it's one of those sweltering 100-degree days that turns into like a 90-degree night, but people still want to sit outside for some reason. They're just sitting there in the humid soup that is Houston. And you bring out a bottle of wine, and as soon as you step foot outside, the glasses just immediately fog up because it's just so humid outside. And you pour them like a taste of red wine, but because of the fluctuation of 55 degrees to 90, it, it almost is a disservice of the wine because it almost appears to be too cold yeah but but when you're inside and it's wonderfully air conditioned to 72 degrees and it's not not as noticeable
0: is there a strong seasonality to the wine program at 13 we, we jokingly like to say that in houston uh rosé season is 51 weeks out of the year but do you find that houston winters versus houston summers there's a big change in your sales mix
1: there's definitely like a larger group of people that uh, sway towards the bigger, heavier reds on cooler nights, um, and those light, refreshing whites during the spring and summertime. But even so, even when it's 100 degrees out, there's still that person who comes in who wants that 16% alcohol Cabernet Sauvignon.
0: <laughs> yeah, some Houstonians just, no matter what time of you the year care. it is, doesn't matter humidity levels or temperature, they want that big old red wine. So, so kind of. Getting back to maybe the start for you, you started working at 13 Celsius in 2012 or so. You've been there for about eight years.
1: Uh, I actually started in 2009. I'm approaching my 11-year anniversary. Wow, that's Um, crazy. Yeah, I was working my way through college. I was working on my degree in communication uh, Mm -hmm. at U of H downtown, and it was actually a friend of mine that I met in class uh, who happened to be dating a guy who was a bartender part-time at 13 on the weekends. Like he had like a normal job, but he took this bartending gig at, at this, you know, wine bar that had only been open for like a year or two at the time, uh, because he wanted to meet chicks, thus meeting, uh, my friend who was a student, you know, one of the students in one of my classes. And she took me there for the first time. And then I ended up actually having uh, my, on my 21st birthday, actually, I also like hung out in the courtyard. um, And little did I know a year later when I was 22 on my birthday, stepped foot in there to apply for a job, had an interview and got hired. That's Um, so cool. yeah, I thought that maybe I was going to do the whole like communication sales side of things and maybe be like a wine rep. And I was recommended that you go and you know, you pay your dues, you go work for something, meet people, get your foot in the door, start learning more about wine. And what a better place to do that than at a wine bar where you're exposed to different styles and kinds and flavor profiles and like regions from around the world. Hmm. And when I first started at 13, the wine list was not nearly as big as it, as it is now, but we still had a very eclectic list that you knew that if you wanted to have an experience and try something new that you go to 13 celsius and to this day i still try to uh harbor that same philosophy but it's getting harder and harder to impress people nowadays i feel like everyone has seen almost all the tricks in the book so it's it's getting (laughs) it's hard to you feel like consumers
0: you feel like people coming in are just more more knowledgeable more educated More, more
1: knowledgeable more more educated, more well traveled. you know, Houston, I think being such like a worldly city. Um, it's not unusual when you say, "Hey, check out this Armenian red wine. Cool. Let's try it. like it's it's so <laughs> so
0: it's less that an increase in consumer education has made people skeptical. It's just made them, do you think more excited to try things or more
1: excited and more embracing of different unique things mm-hmm. um,
0: but maybe not as. Surprisable, um or maybe not as impressionable as they were before
1: yeah i think mostly a lot of this you know there's the natural wine movement um mm-hmm. and and stuff and you know that's been going on now for several years and i think that that definitely opened a lot of people's eyes but now a lot of people are like okay cool heard of natural wine i either like it or i do not like it um or sometimes i like it but maybe not today yeah Or then there's the other that are like, I only want to drink natural wine. What natural wines do you have? But when that first natural wines were kind of coming through, because it's just some of those wines that are like super weird, they're almost kombucha-like, sparkling, sour, like a sour beer and a wine combined, and some people were just like absolutely put off by it. But that used to like help to like surprise people, change their minds and their palates, and kind of give them something totally different.
0: Do you remember your first experience with natural wine?
1: Yeah. Um, it, my first experience actually was with, um, the Frank Cornelina Um, it, it's one of those wines that people now just absolutely praise and almost religiously like seek out. But eight years ago, I feel like you had to like pay people to drink it because people mm-hmm. were like, that wine is bad. And in fact, that that's the story, um, is that the distributor at the time, thought that the wine was bad. He had it sitting in his warehouse. He had cases of it and had come by and sampled um, our opening proprietor, uh, Mike Sammons, on that wine. And Mike was like, no, no, no. This is actually how this wine is supposed to taste. It's aged in fora. It's funky. It's weird. You know, it's natural. And we'll take some. So then from there, we started selling it by the glass. And this is when, I mean, it was in abundance. Now it's so allocated. I mean, you, you're lucky if you can get six bottles of it a year.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, I I think I had just moved to Houston, so it would have been 20, I guess, 13 or so. Um, but the first wine tasting, trade tasting that I ever attended was at 13 Celsius when you hosted Frank. Um, yeah. And it was kind of before y'all opened for service, it was maybe five or six different buyers. He was doing a dinner that night at Oxheart. Yep. And... And just got to taste the wines and chat with him and learn a little bit about his story. It was super cool.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm fortunate that I, I've been invited to go to Vin Italy almost every single year, which is held in Verona. It's the, one of the world's largest wine conventions. And Frank is always, Frank Cornelius is always there showcasing his most recent vintage. And I've been able to try and make it a point to see him every year and taste the new juice. Um, and so it's been interesting to keep up with the wines that, I can't even get sometimes, or are just so allocated they don't even come into Texas.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about Vin Italy? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't know what that is or what it entails. I know you said it's kind of a like, large wine tasting, but how many years have you been going? You said it's in Verona. Can you give me a little more detail about it?
1: Well, I'll just tell you I'm very sad right now because most of the time in April— I'm in Italy for this fair and like while I'm there exploring different properties and on Facebook right now, every day I pull it up and it's like your memory from three years ago when you were, <laughs> you know, at so yeah. and such place in Northern Italy. And I'm just, my heart goes out right now to everyone who's sitting at home or stuck or worried about their yeah. families and stuff like that. But, um, it's always held in April. It's always held in Verona. I want to say that they've been doing it for 20 something years. And I think I've been six or seven out of the past eight years. There's, there's one year that I couldn't go in the now again this year. Um, but it's four days long and it attracts all of the Italian Psalms because they want to come and taste the new vintage. And then it tastes, it, it, it attracts, uh, other wine professionals and other songs from around the world. And then also other, um, uh, Distributors, suppliers, and importers, because they're able to sort of like taste the new vintage. It always occurs in the spring, so you know harvest happened, the wines made, and then springtime, you know, you're kind of getting like the first taste of how that year was. And for a lot of like importers, it's like, oh, this was really good. I'm going to take two pallets instead of one, hmm. or whatever. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's also a lot of work because it is. 10 a.m. till 6 p.m. four days in a row and you're constantly tasting, spitting, tasting, spitting. It's dehydrating. It's exhausting. Hmm. You usually don't have time to eat lunch. Like I will pack like a little like peanut butter and jelly sandwich and like a granola bar and sometimes like an apple with me just to kind of snack on in between appointments because it's just like it's go, go, go. And by the time that you're done with the fair, you usually then are off to a piazza because you're having a spritz like with another supplier, another producer to catch up with them and maintain relationships. And then you have dinner and then you have to go to bed. There's no time. If you party, if you get drunk and you're hungover, you're screwed because there's literally no recovery time. There's no, Oh, I need 10 more minutes to sleep in. It's like, no, you did you make go. that
0: mistake your first year at Vin Italy? Is that no, a lesson f- that you learned? My or? first
1: year was pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, it was on a pretty good routine. There is definitely the second year that I went, like one of the nights that I might have stayed up a little bit late and I ended up missing half the day because if you don't make the bus, you got to take a cab in <laughs> and sometimes it just takes a little extra while to catch back up with everyone else. So yeah, know I, I try not to make those mistakes. And it's tempting. It's hard because there's lots of people that are come to Verona and other psalms, not just from you know the United States, but other parts of the world. And you start to make some friends and you get to see familiar faces once a year in the same place. And it's, it's tempting to want to stay and hang out all night and drink and talk and hang out.
0: Are there any really rewarding kind of like personal relationships that you've built over the past eight years visiting Vin Italy with people from outside of the United States, either winemakers or other psalms?
1: Yeah, there's a uh, Gabrielli. Uh, mostly it's Italian people, uh, Gabriele mm-hmm. and then Mario from uh, E Custodi, um, Federico Sandri from Pieri Sandri. Like, I look forward to seeing these people, uh, Luisa Roca, Bruno Roca, um, mm-hmm. having a drink with them, catching up. You know, we're friends on Facebook, but you kind of like live vicariously through their lives, and you get to see them once a year and actually see That's you know, how cool. your family and stuff. So it's it's pretty cool.
0: That's really fun. I, enjoy have, it. I like it a lot. Have there been any opportunities during those visits to Vin Italy to learn about a new region, was there a style of wine or a grape that you discovered through tastings at Venetia that maybe you hadn't been either exposed to or had fully appreciated in tastings here in the States?
1: Yeah, you know, traveling um with a wine importer uh, sometimes you go to places that you wouldn't necessarily pick out on your own because you are on someone else's time, but but therefore those discoveries are just so much more rewarding. Uh, one of the regions in particular this one year that we went to, um, Emilia-Romagna doing Limbrusco was so cool. And just how you think of Emilia-Romagna, and they have it categorized on the map as one region together, but they're really two. There's Emilia kind of towards the north and then there's Romagnoli and those are the more towards the south and the styles of wines that they make and even the people and, and stuff like that consider themselves very, very two different t- types. Um, and also the the region of the Marquet, we got to spend quite a bit of time in it. I, I don't think a lot of people go to the Marquet. Um, this one year we were flying in, we were supposed to fly into Ancona, which is in the Marche, and Ancona is like a small little town. It's very hilly and it's right on the Adriatic. And so, so
0: just to paint a picture, we're talking further south and the eastern side of the Italian peninsula, right? Compared to exactly. Emilia-Romagna, we're further south um, and a little more coastal, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So right on the Adriatic coast. And there was some just really intense fog that year. And it had been really, really bad Apparently, according to the locals, it just was like this never lifting fog. And the, our, nebbia. the nebbia, but yeah, but in, but in the Marque, which was kind of unusual to see the Nebbia so far south at mm-hmm. that time of year. So the pilot who was just, you know, we, we flew from Frankfurt into, we we're supposed to fly into Ancona, pilot couldn't see the runway to land because it was so foggy and it was in the middle of the day. Oh, and man. just how the terrain was, it's so like there's like rocks and hills and kind of steeper uh, terrain kind of coming into the city that, uh, we tried to, she tried to land the plane three times and could not land the plane. And so by the third time when we circled back around and the plane starts diving in towards the descent towards, you know, to land. And I just remember looking out the window or everyone on the plane is already, you know, like <laughs> kind of yeah. sweaty just, you know, the, the little old Italian lady next to me was, you know, counting her rosaries, doing her oh prayers God. and stuff like that. And was kind of like, what is happening? And the <laughs> third time I remember going, we went, descended further than we had descended before. And I just remember all of a sudden looking down and the fog had lifted and it was like you could see the ground. And in my mind, I was like, the ground, the angle that we're at and the speed that we're going is way too fast and steep for us to ever land successfully. And at the same moment that that hit my mind, the pilot jerked the plane right back up. We, we went straight back up into the clouds. We ended up having to divert and land in Bologna.
0: Wow. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. Couldn't land in Ancona, but they tried to land three times and it was, and each time it was just like, holy shit. And I'm kind of a nervous flyer, like as is, like, I don't really like to fly by myself. I just like someone else to be there. Um, and so that had my anxiety at an 11 out of 10.
0: You needed Um, a big glass of wine when you got off that plane.
1: Yeah. Well, so that was the thing. So we landed in Bologna, which meant that we had to get in a rental car and then drive the two and a half hours to Ancona. because that's where our hotel and our accommodations and stuff like that were. So by the time we get to the hotel, it's like nine o'clock at night. And we went to the restaurant, which is right across the street from the hotel and sat down and slammed two bottles of Verdicchio (laughs) between the two of us. Within like an hour, and since then, Verdicchio has been my absolute most favorite white wine Italian Italian white grape uh, because it just it just tastes just like sweet relief. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you don't, you it's, don't need a zani, you just need I a little verdicchio. Yeah, that's a all. Verdicchio
1: and life is good. <laughs>
0: that's great. So, talk a little bit more about Marque and um the wine that's made there because I don't it's like you said, a lot of people aren't familiar with it. I know they grow Sangiovese there, Lacrima de Moro, but yeah, so, how well, would you describe the reds and whites that come from Marque? I
1: mean, the whites you've got, I mean, Verdicchio being a sort of their grape claim to fame um and the other one that's really interesting is the La Crema de Mora de Alba, which is the red grape that grows there and um, named as such because when it, the grapes are so ripe uh, that they're starting to sort of like cry hmm. with purple juice. And that's how you know that they're about to, uh, to be able to be picked because La Crema is like the tears um, loosely translated in Italian. Um, but the wine itself makes kind of like a more grapey, fruity, almost sweet, sometimes slightly sparkling red wines. Um, and then you've got your, again, the Verdicchio going back to that one, your mineral crisp dry whites that pairs perfectly with all of the uh, delicious langoustine from the, from the Mediterranean and from the Adriatic and all this shellfish and stuff.
0: Um, and then you were also talking earlier about, the differences between Amelia and Romagna, and you were saying that the wine made there is different, and even a, a difference in personality in the people is reflected in the wine. How would you break down that difference between the two?
1: Definitely. So, like, well, starting with, like, the, the Romagnoli, I think, are the more the rustic in style. They're more farmers. Uh, they think of themselves, I think, a little bit more. And th- this is from someone... His name is Max. He's at a winery called Trey and they're in a little small town called Faenza. And Faenza is this is again closer to the Romagnole part, which is I would say more of like the southern and eastern portion of Emilia Romagna. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where like the true heart of like Bolognese sauce also comes from. Uh, the wines that they are more proud of there are their Sangiovese, and you also have the uh, Albania de Romagna, mm-hmm. as. Is kind of in that part. And then as you start to transcend a little bit further North and West, that's more of like the Emilia. And this is where you get Parma and Bologna and Modena. And this is where you get into like Lambrusco country hmm. and prosciutto de Parma and Parmesan cheese. And this is also where they make balsamic vinegar and they, at least the Romagnoli consider those the more hoity-toity, uptight, those oh, from man. Amelia. I mean, this is more more of where a lot of the industry is, too, where they make Ducati and Lamborghini. There's a lot of money. There's also a lot of what people don't really understand, or maybe a lot of people don't know, is like, well, like underground, sort of like communist, socialist sort of um, undertones. We went to this one bar that was definitely had this kind of like weird feel to it. They had a bunch of like old 1970s, like American CDs and interesting things on the wall to sort of suggest a more socialist and communist approach to life.
0: That's funny. All right. Remember that iPad that Adele was using? Alright, remember that iPad that Adele was using as a microphone? Well, it froze up at this point, and we lost about 10 amazing minutes of Adele waxing poetic about Italian food. Mostly different types of cured meat. It was a major bummer to lose that part of the convo, but we tried to retrace our steps as soon as the iPad was up and running again. Here's where we picked up. So I think we were talking we, we, we were talking about Ciccioli and our hopes and dreams of getting it at 13 Celsius. Um, But we were also just kind of discussing how much you love Italy and, you know, how that love for Italy, that passion for the different places and styles of wine have influenced your curation of wine at 13.
1: Yeah, I have always enjoyed Italian wine. I've had my first sort of aha moments with Italian wine, and I've also just been fortunate to be asked on the same trip each year um to visit I, I do want to explore other other parts of the world and other wine regions and stuff but it's just like once you start diving into one and you just keep going further and further down the rabbit hole gratifying it can be well
0: one thing yeah i mean one thing that stands out to me when i think of italian wine i think of wine that goes with food um that's very true. certainly there are there, there, there's a lot of italian wine that you can drink entirely on its own but I think of Italian wine most often being used in a synergistic relationship with food in a way that some wines from other parts of the world aren't. Um, And I think, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the food program at 13 is, you know, very robust, certainly more robust than most of the other wine bars in the city. Um, I think when most people talk about what makes 13 special, one of the things that comes up is the food that you guys have. And that love for Italian wine, I think, fits within that kind of framework.
1: Yeah, um, I think the for us, you know, the whole philosophy behind the food program is to make the guest feel like they don't need to leave to eat something before they order mm-hmm. another glass. And so, in order to like have just something that's not necessarily like full blown dinner, although granted, people certainly. Uh, use 13 Celsius to have dinner at. Um, we are definitely more of a meat and cheese charcuterie focused food program uh, supplemented with some delicious like grilled panini, small salads and other small plates. But technically, you know, we don't, we don't cook anything at 13 Celsius. It's just sort of like assembled. Mm-hmm. Some things are melted or heated, but I mean, we don't have a grease trap. We don't have a hood vent. We don't cook. Air quotes. Yeah.
0: Quote, unquote, cook
1: cook at 13 Celsius. We, We
0: should say you mentioned paninis and the mortadella sandwich that you guys have on the menu is like a legend within the city of Houston. I believe it was voted best sandwich in the entire city. Um,
1: last year by the Houston.
0: Yeah. yeah, By the Houston press, right?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's that's a pretty
0: big deal. I mean, (laughs) you guys aren't necessarily a sandwich shop. Um, you said to yourself, you're not a restaurant per se. (laughs) Um, and to win best sandwich for the entire fucking city is pretty cool. What, what makes that sandwich so good?
1: Um, I think there's a few factors at play. Uh, the first of which is that we offer food until midnight every night and then one o'clock on the weekends during normal business hours. Obviously this time we're not having normal business hours, but um, we have so many people who get get off work, a lot of service industry and professionals who get off work. And it's a very satisfying sandwich because it's slices of mortadella that have been slightly, you know, grilled or pressed on the panini press. So they start to caramelize a little bit on one side. Um, And then we layer that with fresh, Roma tomatoes, some sliced cornichon pickles, a little bit of mustard, and some shredded provolone cheese. Uh, this is all sandwiched in the middle of a pretzel. And it's not your usual pretzel bun, it is an actual, like, baked pretzel that we've just sliced down the middle. Um, and we finish the whole thing off with a super delicious, runny, fried egg.
0: It's, it's very indulgent. Very indulgent. It's- That egg yolk is the perfect kind of sauce that you need with that sandwich.
1: Yeah, it's ham and eggs. It's like sometimes, you know, like a breakfast sandwich for dinner almost in a way because you got the egg and you got the ham with the mortadella.
0: Yeah, and I I can attest from personal experience that at 1230, you know, half past midnight, that's all you want. Um, It's everything you need. It's the perfect sustenance. What wine would you pair with a sandwich like that?
1: a Duvel. Really? <laughs> it's not even a wine at all. It's, a, yeah, like oh, a man. Belgian beer. <laughs> you know, people ask me that all the time, and that one's just really hard for me because there's kind of different elements of the sandwich that, like, with the breakfasty sort of element of, like, a fried egg, like, I want a mimosa, but we don't serve mimosas. But then there's, like, the savoriness of the meat. You know, sometimes my go-to is just, like, a Chablis or some something Mm -hmm. white and neutral because the sandwich itself has so much going on. Um, but then a light bodied red, maybe a light Dolcetto or Barbera or something from Northern Mm -hmm. Italy. Um, yeah, people ask that all the time. And I find that they more of just want me to tell them what they want to drink because that's what they want to drink. And that necessarily doesn't go with the wine or with the the food.
0: I've encountered that a lot too. When people come into a wine bar, um, and they want something that pairs with their food, they're not necessarily looking for a great pairing. Um, yeah they're just kind of looking for you to validate whatever decision they've already made.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you might recommend like, oh yeah, like this seafood tower with the champagne. And they're like, No, 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 but what red wines would you pair with that? And it's like, okay, fine. So you don't really care about the pairing. You just want me to pick out a good red wine. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Um, are there other things on the menu that you're really excited about food-wise?
1: Um, I mean, for me, like put, putting together just like an amazing charcuterie and cheese selection. We have over a dozen different cheeses, all great artisanal small farm ones. We get everything from the Houston Dairy Maids um, and then like a selection of different charcuteries. And you can pick and choose and make your own board. That's one of my favorite things.
0: Yeah, for sure. We should mention that the owner of Houston Dairy Maids, Lindsay, um, she oftentimes collaborates with you for a wine and cheese tasting, right? Don't you do that every year? We do it
1: sometimes twice a year, yeah. So Lindsay has been open for almost the same number of years as we have, and she was one of our first uh, companies that we worked with, and we were one of her first customers. So we've always had like a really strong relationship, which there's a lot of like parallels between wine and cheese, you know, especially like the business model and the philosophy that she has of like, sourcing from small family-owned farmers who take care of their cows really well and make cheese? Well, we try to select wines from small farmers who really take care of their grapes to make great wine. And it just naturally is like a a pairing uh, that goes well together. And so we'll do these classes uh, collaborating. We're supposed to be doing one next month, but we'll see if it gets postponed (laughs) again. Uh, American cheese and wine, where we've picked out some really cool, like domestic cheeses from around the United States. And we're pairing them also with um, a beverage that comes from that same state, whether it's Vermont or California or Texas, we've, we've sourced different things yeah, to go with that. And so like Lindsay, Lindsay will help teach the classes and she's extremely knowledgeable and like the whole thing from the process to the stories about the family, what the cow's name is and everything like that.
0: generally speaking are there some like basic wine and cheese pairings that you recommend in terms of like firmer cheese softer cheese red wine white wine um is there any kind of hard and fast rules that you try to follow in general when it comes to that sort of thing or that Lindsay has talked about in any of those classes
1: um one of my favorites is is if it Mm. grows together it goes together so finding Mm. a, a Cheese from the Loire Valley that might be a goat cheese. We'll go figure. It goes great with a Sancerre, Savignon Blanc, something I that's crisp and minerally. Mm-hmm. Um, then another good pairing is that opposites attract. You've got your blue cheese uh, that sometimes is like that super sharp and salty and a little bit funky. And then you pair it with a dessert wine, like a Royal Tokai or a Sauternes or something. Um, and We're
0: talking about wines that have been affected by Botrytis, mm-hmm. this kind of um, honeyed characteristic that those wines take on.
1: Exactly. And it's, it's that sweet and salty sort of opposites attract. Um, and then of course there's the, you know, if it's sharp, harder cheeses that have lots of robust flavor can usually stand up to a red wine with robust flavor as well. And things that are lighter and more delicate, drink it with something lighter and more delicate. Those are my three go-to's.
0: All right, this is me hopping back in. Not as like interviewer Chris, but as like narrator Chris. Um, We got another issue with the iPad. Um, So we lost a couple minutes of the combo. Yo, I'm not here to throw shade on Tim Cook, but he got to get this iPad fixed for Adele and her fiance. In the meantime, and for me, like let's get it fixed for me too. In the meantime, Adele and I picked right back up talking about like the charitable work that she likes to do at 13. Here we go. Circling back to what we were saying about... The way you celebrate women in wine. Oh yeah. Uh, with yeah.
1: Um, well, this you know this started with um, I think is breast cancer awareness, uh, and we've always done something for breast cancer. Uh, it started out with our we used to do a pink party back in the day. We were like one day you drank Rose, wore pink, and then we donated a proceed, a uh, part of the proceeds to uh, like a local charity. Like we've done like legacy. I think we've done heart. Um, and then the idea was like, how can we take this one step further? Instead of having one day to celebrate women and make a donation, you know, what if we did a whole month's feature and go figure the month of October is breast cancer awareness month. So a couple of years ago, I started putting together a whole list of women, winemakers, 13 of them. Cause it's 13 Celsius. Uh, Mm -hmm. 13 different female winemakers to feature uh, by the glass for the whole month of October. And then a proceed of the sales from those wines in particular. um, We found a really cool, small local charity called legacy, not legacy, sorry. Um, Sweets of hope Uh, and sweets of hope. They help patients specifically like, breast cancer patients who are going through treatments and chemo and they need a place to live that's affordable. Because if you're going through months and months of treatment, that's an expensive hotel or an expensive Airbnb. So they instead provide like an apartment uh, with accommodations, with cable, with power, a fridge full of groceries for sometimes those plus their family that might be staying with them. And so when we're able to make a donation of a thousand dollars, $5,000, $5,000, it actually really goes to something real versus one of those large Susan B. Coleman where your donation gets lost amongst hundreds and hundreds. So we donate to them every year and it's it's been a fun learning experience to um, find all these different like wine women winemakers and um show them as well. We always try to tag them on social media so they have the opportunity to to repost what we're doing in Houston and, and to feel special and part of the the girl gang.
0: Girl gang, I love it.
1: Babe Brigade.
0: <laughs> Do you think that gender plays much of a role in the wine industry? I mean, for you, have you noticed anything or is there anything of note that impacts the way in which you operate within the world of wine?
1: Um, I guess it's because I've been doing it for so long. I've already accepted the fact that it's a man's world. I'll, most of my friends are guys because of it. Most of my colleagues and stuff like that are, are it is a very male dominated industry. Um, but I guess I'm so used to, I don't really notice it anymore so much, but I will say, um, something in the, the more recent years, and this is maybe just a Houston thing. Maybe this is just the time of year, but I haven't had any or hardly any females apply to be a bartender or a song hmm. in, in a long time. And there used to be a lot more, you know, I would say five or four or five years ago, we had a very female heavy bar staff and now i've got a very heavy male staff and i've had a very heavy male bartending staff for a while i just haven't had any girls walk through the door and apply so i don't know if things are changing or if like the hotel management and the whole like degree and stuff like that that hilton college is as appealing as it used to be i mean i know the one thing about running a restaurant slash bar is the hours the hours suck Mm -hmm. To be totally honest, I mean, being at work. And
0: we should say that 13 Celsius is a full bar with bar hours. It's not operating like a restaurant closing at 10 o'clock or even midnight. You you guys stay open till 2 We're until 2 a.m. until 2 a.m. And with the amount of side work you guys have, it's not unusual for you to get out at 3, 3.30 in the morning, right?
1: Yeah, Friday, Saturday night, 3.30 is, if you're out on time, you're out at 3.30. That's on time. Mm. And if something crazy happened, you're out at 4 o'clock in the morning. And then it ruins your next day because you're sleeping in. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I think that there's a lot of people that can attest to the bro culture that exists within... Wine in general, there's terms like natty daddy, you and I both know our fair share of bro psalms. I mean, do you think that has anything to do with that movement towards more male bartenders applying for the position? Yeah,
1: maybe because it's, it's something that's kind of like in and cool. I mean, if you look at the psalm documentary that was like super popular, like it's all male psalms that they're following, right? Mm
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Having said that, though, one of your newest bartenders, didn't you say that she moved from Fredericksburg to join your staff? Yeah,
1: it's my first female hire in almost two years because it's also the first female that's applied that's mm-hmm. been qualified in two okay. years. And so she moved, yeah, from, from San Antonio, Fredericksburg area where she was working at a wine bar over there.
0: And you mentioned that she's been one of the few that's been qualified. What do you look for? Does someone need to have a lot of wine experience to be you know, qualified to work at a wine bar like Thirteen? You guys have a vast menu. Um, there's definitely a lot of material to cover. What do you look for? What are the intangible qualities that someone needs to have?
1: Service. 100% service experience. You don't necessarily have to know everything about wine, but you need to know the the more than the basics of good quality service, because the only thing that we really sell at 13 Celsius is customer service. Anyone can open a bar and sell whatever they want, but having an experience and having good customer service is is irreplaceable. It makes the place unique. So if someone has, you know, several years of upscale or fine dining, I know that they know service. And then the next thing is you need to have like a basic understanding of wine. When I say basic, I mean the difference between like a Riesling and a Chardonnay. You need to be able to mm-hmm. tell me something about Italian wine, because we always have an Italian wine focus. You know, like, can you name a grape? can you name a region? And that's what I, what I say when I mean qualified, I don't necessarily like want anyone to have their level one, though it helps because if they do have their level one, then it's like, okay, they're level one sommelier. All right. I know that they know the basics because they, they passed a test already by someone else.
0: We would be remiss to not discuss the way in which you've adapted 13 Celsius to the current situation. COVID-19, we're recording this on April 7th. For the past, I would say, what, three weeks, you've been operating what was previously a very high volume on-premise bar into a retail shop. Can you kind of walk me through what that process has been like from the time you guys were thinking about making that decision? to actually executing it and pivoting and essentially turning a bar into a shop?
1: Yeah, we've always had a retail license, but a lot of people don't realize that unless they come to our tastings or our classes, which is when we take the time to say, hey, and we have a retail license. Come pick out these bottles. Um, But it was a very quick uh, turnaround. I had already started thinking a few days prior to the announcement that they were going to close everything about what we would do in the case that they would close, uh, for in, in, um, in, what do you call it? In-house dining. Sorry. Uh, my sister lives in California and they've been already on shelter in place weeks before we were. And, you know, in communication with her and she's like, you know, the restaurants are still able to do to go, but you can't go in and this, that and the other. And I was like, okay, all right. If this is what's going to happen, what do we need to do? How do we need to change? And the first thing, that we changed was of course our hours, uh, instead of bar hours, we're now open from 11am until 9pm daily, seven days a week. So people can come in when they are normally out and about running their errands, going grocery shopping on a lunch break, wanting to pick up a panini and a bottle of wine later for dinner, or, you know, Saturday, especially Saturdays have been very nice having people come, they can come in at, you know, noon or one o'clock when they're doing their errands for the day before they hunker down for the next three or four, um, and then figuring out you know what percentage that we could offer to go to be competitive with everyone else who's doing to go, but also so that we are able to still cover our expenses, our overhead, um, and then getting all the to-go packaging and to make sure that we were able to to offer to go of all of our food options for people to, you know, meat and cheese and stuff like that, to like package everything up, to still maintain the integrity of the product, but for them to take home and enjoy, because when you slice meat, obviously, you know, we're not like a deli. We don't have like um, all of the the proper equipment and stuff like that to preserve things. Once they've been sliced, it was just like getting all of that together so that things, when you get home, you can assemble your own meat and cheese board and things still taste good. Uh, but the biggest the biggest thing and the weirdest thing has just been not being able to have that face to face interaction with guests and being able to gauge if they're comprehending what you're saying, because you can talk to someone on the phone and describe a wine and, and you're not sure if they even know what you're talking about. Cause normally you can kind of tell by just like context clues and just like, you know, facial expression expressions If people are like, they're with you. They're like, Oh yeah, that sounds good. Or if they're like, that sounds terrible or I don't know what language you're speaking. And and this has been the hardest thing is just on a phone to kind of like go over the list because we still have, you know, 400 different selections of wines. And someone's like, I want a dry white wine. like, where do you want to start? You know, <laughs> we have hundreds and... how how to like adapt that through the phone instead of like a face-to-face interaction. Although we do have people who come into the shop and you're welcome to come in. Anyone's welcome to come in and like look around, but majority of our sales now are being done over the phone.
0: And that's challenging because you could give someone the exact same description that you would give them if they were at 13 Celsius, but... You describing a really delicious Verdicchio in a candlelit bar at nine o'clock at night is very different than someone putting you on speakerphone while they're trying to change a baby's diaper. Exactly. You know? Like people are having to have these wine conversations in a way that they didn't before.
1: Yeah. And and they're also having wine conversations and they're like, honey, does this sound good to you? She said it's like a dry something, something. Yeah, okay, yeah, we will just do two (laughs) bottles of that. That sounds fine. It's like, okay. That's funny.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Do you find that you're getting a different sort of clientele in now than you did before? Or are the people visiting 13 the same people that were coming into 13 previously?
1: We have a huge Turnout of our regulars, our fans, and our neighbors that are coming to visit us and are helping to keep the bar alive on a daily and, and weekly basis for sure. But it is mm. interesting because there are some new familiar faces, and it's due to people who are out and about taking walks with their dog, oh, yeah, with yeah, their yeah. stroller, and they walk by and they see because I put this huge sign up that says, "Hey, we're open for to-go, 11:00 to go eleven to nine p.m." And they peek their head and they're like, "What is this?" We, place? Should, we should
0: describe the sign a little bit because I've seen it and. I want to make sure we're doing it justice. This is probably like a six-foot sign that's printed out using eight-by-eleven sheets of paper yes. that covers one of the windows, yes. right? Like it's a massive—you, you literally cannot miss it. Yeah. It's huge.
1: Yeah, I want everyone to know that we're still open <laughs> from three blocks away. You can see it. We are open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's, so, so that's people been fun. that are
0: just kind of strolling by, yeah, um, they're. Sauntering through midtown and they see the sign and they walk in that's got to be pretty cool
1: Yeah, so we've we've had a couple people and and then they've come back. And they're like, oh, yeah, hey We were here last week picked up this bottle can't wait to actually experience What you guys are like when you're all are open mm-hmm. And it's like we can't wait either <laughs> <laughs>
0: Has this altered the way in which you're interacting with your vendors at all? Um, Your, like the people, your purveyors, your wine distributors, how is this kind of altering those
1: relationships? And it's kind of a sad time because we really aren't buying a whole lot of anything because, I mean, obviously sales are down. So it's Mm -hmm. buying things on the very bare minimum need. And the thing is, is that people aren't spending money on individual bottles of wine like they normally would. People want things under $25 a bottle. So as of right now, that's been the only thing that I've been purchasing from some select vendors has been things that we can offer after discount to under $25. And Hmm. those that I am supporting right now are the small distributors That don't work in HEV. They don't work with Whole Foods. They don't do any sort of like off-premise specs and stuff like that. So they're desperate for business and they're they're hurting because they only sell to restaurants and all the restaurants are closed.
0: Yeah, we should clarify that, you know, places like 13 Celsius buy their wine from distributors and there's a wide range of different distributors. You know, I don't know how many you work with you know, pre pandemic, but it was probably around 20 or so. Right? I was going
1: to say two dozen. Yeah, about 20. 24 yeah. different so, suppliers or distributors. And some of
0: those are very, very big and they sell to big grocery stores or Costco's or HEBs. And then they're very small, boutique y. Businesses that are family owned and operated, maybe they have less than 10 total employees and they predominantly sell to businesses like 13 Celsius, you know, wine bars and small restaurants. Yeah, small chef
1: driven restaurants and some curated lists. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are the people that are hurting the most right now, those smaller boutique uh, distributors.
1: Yeah, so if I am ordering anything, it's it's from those people right now. Unless someone comes in and calls me and says, hey, I want a special order, this, this, that, and the other, then I will contact whoever that comes from in order to fulfill a guest's wish.
0: It's, it's stressful times. What are you doing to stay sane through all of this?
1: You know, I'm working a lot, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I've been working, uh, doing the to-go stuff and and for the past three weeks. 50-something hours a week. I've got two days off today, being one of which I've done laundry. And I've cleaned (laughs) up the house a little bit. And um, my fiancé and I are working on building a puzzle.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) People are really into puzzling. There was an article written recently, I think, in the New York Times about how there's a shortage on puzzles, that it was this like antiquated thing that no one really used anymore. Everyone was playing video games or... Games on their iPhones, and now all of a sudden there's this like surge in demand for puzzles. Which I I, had ne- I hadn't done a puzzle I think since I was a child.
1: Yeah, so. and you know there's something fun about puzzles because you you know you start yeah. playing music and you put on like some of your favorite albums. You open up some wine and you're like talking and doing this puzzle at the same time. It's like an activity. Yeah. To to do to kind of like and the next thing you know it's three o'clock in the morning and you're like holy <laughs> crap! But look how much we did. Okay, one more yeah. piece each, and then we're going to bed. Okay, no, wait, no, one That's more funny. after that piece, and then we're going to bed.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. What's the image on your puzzle? What's the...
1: It's like this very colorful um, picture of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. It's got all sorts of colors <laughs> on it, and trees, and, and like the, the river.
0: How many pieces?
1: It's a thousand-piece puzzle. We're almost done with oh, it, this too. Oh, this is a big one. Yeah, it's a big That's one. a big puzzle. Yeah. I'll send you a picture when we're done.
0: I, I need to see this.
1: The biggest, the biggest question, though, is when we're done with it, do we destroy it, put it back in the box and give it to someone else?
0: No, you frame that shit and you put it on your wall.
1: No, That's what you gotta but it's do. not like that good looking of a puzzle. It's not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it, it's a sense of accomplishment, Adele. I guess. You, you did this.
1: But I think it'd be satisfying to like pass on the puzzle, you know, and then someone else passes yeah. a puzzle to us.
0: We should say you're the proud mother of two cats. I
1: have two cats. I have Jelly. Jelly, he is a 20 pound... Grand white, long-haired tuxedo. He's about 10 mm-hmm. years old. He is the boss. I'm just lucky I get to live in the same house as him because... Oh, man. <laughs> and when he was one years old, he was such a good kitty, I got him a cat. So his cat is white, long-haired, and also fat and fluffy. And her name... <laughs> Is also Jelly because when she was a kitten, <laughs> she's just a little dumb and she just never took to her own name, but she takes to the name Jelly. Like she'll, her ears will perk up. Her tail will kind of like flip flop a little bit. When I say Jelly, it's almost yeah, like maybe. kitty, kitty. It's Jelly, Jelly. And so she thinks that Jelly is her name too. <laughs> so I have two cats, cat, two cats with the same name. For the most part, they just lay around. They like, I mean, well, both of mine are now you know 10 and nine years old now. So they literally just sleep all day.
0: And they help you out with the puzzles. It's great.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, what was the last bottle of wine you drank? What was the last bottle that you opened while you were puzzling?
1: Okay, so I'm going to... I actually drank some really good stuff the other night because it was Sunday and and why not? Um, yeah. And we kind of like went into the cooler and I was like, all right, let's open up one thing that's like really really old and really good and let's just drink it for no reason because you know what else we're going to drink it so we opened yeah. up this bottle of 2001 uh gaia costa russi it's um it's just a long level nebbiolo but it was a gift that was given to me by a wine collector um years ago that i've just been kind of sitting on and like told myself i'm not going to touch this for 20 years or something like that. But we drank it. And I'm actually really glad that we did because I think it was in a really, really good spot. 100%. Yeah, Nebbiola, that was just gorgeous. On the nose, on the palate, we decanted it, drank it. And within the last 30 minutes of it being open, I'd say about two hours total, the last 30 minutes, it just started to die. And the fruit was gone. So mm. I, mean, I was very happy for that one. But normally... We've been on a rose kick because it is springtime,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so uh, yeah,
0: and it broke ninety degrees a couple of times recently here in Houston. Yeah, it was, it was pretty warm.
1: We haven't so. had air conditioning upstairs for the past three weeks. It's been real fun. Oh Jesus! Yeah, no. so <laughs> we just
0: add it to the list.
1: We've had three different companies tell us three different things with three very different price tags to fix. So right now. Oh, <laughs> It not
0: is what you needed to hear right now.
1: Not fun, and yeah. But so we've been drinking the rosés and sparkling a lot of rosé. drinking a lot, a lot of rosé. Yeah.
0: Some rose water and puzzles sounds pretty fun to me. Is there anything else that you want to chat about right now? Anything that's um, on your mind that you'd like to discuss? <sighs>
1: It just my heart goes out to all of, you know, like, we're doing this to-go thing, but I, I can only do it with half the staff. I got half the staff right now who's fun employed that, yeah. you know, we were a small company. We don't offer benefits. We don't offer insurance, mm-hmm. you know, paid sick leave and all that stuff like that. You know, there's... Have you guys
0: created a GoFundMe or anything that people listening can donate to or anything like that?
1: Well, the one thing that we have put in place as of last week is called our Invest It Forward plan. And if you buy a gift card at the bar now, 39% of that money goes to our furloughed staff. And the other percent helps with operating costs. And then when we Mm -hmm. reopen, because we will reopen. We own the building. We will reopen. Everything will be okay. But in the meantime, uh, all those other, like the other sixty-one percent like helps for like utilities and stuff like that. And then you can use mm-hmm. the gift card in one hundred percent of its total value when we reopen. Hmm. So it's like investing. And those
0: are sold in any denomination, any denomination, you get any amount. You
1: get it at five dollars. You get it at five thousand dollars. Whatever you want.
0: Got to get that five thousand dollar thirteen Celsius gift card. That's the move, listeners. I know. <laughs> get out there and snag one of those yeah well adele i just really wanted to say thank you again for taking the time to chat and braving these technical difficulties to uh talk with me a little bit today
1: <laughs> yes thank you chris it's good to talk to you too feel free to like edit out any parts of me rambling
0: oh on. Nah, nah. everything was good everything was great I'm sure you're all in agreement with me. Adele did an amazing job and has continued to do an amazing job running 13 Celsius. They are still open for business, slinging wine. Please go cop one of those gift cards. Go snack a bottle. Get some Italian wine. Talk to Adele about Verdicchio. And while you're drinking that bottle of Verdicchio, you can listen to all your favorite episodes of By the Glass wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Pocket Casts, Global. Big thanks to Adele for sitting down and chatting with us. Big thanks to our technical support, Adele's fiance, and everything else. If you got questions, comments, concerns, hit me up. Let me know. You can find us on Instagram at ByTheGlassPodcast. the Glass Podcast. My name's Chris, and we'll see you next week.